Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. It is really easy for church attenders, moral, religious people, to look at the world around us and feel as though we are better. Begin to judge the world around us. Now, maybe last week as we walked through the second part of Romans chapter 1, you found yourself just really agreeing with what's being said. I mean, the world is under God's wrath. They have given in to the sexual revolution and the homosexual revolution, and it's resulted in societal chaos, and they are experiencing God's wrath, and, and frankly, they deserve it. We look at it around us, and maybe we bemoan all that is going on around us. Uh, we rant about it and against it to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers or on social media and uh, talk about how awful the world is today. However, today we're going to discover that Paul kind of set us up. He laid out how wicked the world is and E and we fall prey to looking with disdain at the evil around us. But often we fail to look honestly at our own lives. Too many people believe that because they are moral or because they are religious, that they are all good with God, that everything is okay. Too many people are relying on some little ditty they said as a child for their eternal security. All the while, uh, we excuse our sinful actions and our sinful attitudes that are present in our heart. The reality is the world decries the hypocrisy that is in the church today. And often we bristle at that. Well, everybody's a hypocrite. But the reality is, often that moniker is not unearned. After demonstrating that the culture is in trouble because it is under the wrath of God, Paul presents some bad news to the moral religious people. He informs us, you are in trouble as well because your religion can't save you. Chapters 1 through 3 of Romans lay the foundation of the gospel. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot gain eternal life on our own. We cannot create purpose for our own life. We can't enjoy a relationship with God uh, through our own works. Modern culture cannot accomplish these things because we're under God's judgment, but neither can modern religion accomplish these things for us. Only faith in the saving work of Christ and surrendering our lives to him can accomplish these things for us because your religion can't save you. Let's look at our text this morning, the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 2. Paul writes, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will grant eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the law, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, according to my gospel, when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Although we looked at the last chapter and perhaps voiced agreement with Paul about the culture around us, the depravity that we see, the evil of the world. This text, we discover that we also are without excuse before God. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. The word excuse actually is a word which means without defense. We have no defense against God's righteous judgment. When we stand before God, we have no defense for our wickedness, for our breaking of God's law, our religion, our morality, our observance of the evil around us will not help us. Paul informs us that we're without excuse. And he presents for us three reasons why when we stand before God, we will stand with no defense. Three reasons why your religion can't save you. The first reason is that we have no excuse because God sees our hearts. He says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judges those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says, because of your hearts, wrath is coming. God sees every man's hearts. While we might think that we're fooling others in the ways that we act, we cannot fool God. And so there are two things that we must guard against. First, we must guard against blindly passing judgment on others. He says there, without excuse, 
because in passing judgment, they condemn themselves. It's where judgment is the idea of habitually judging other people. It's a lifestyle of judgment. And he says, you have no excuse, O man. That's actually an important phrase. We might think the O man is a, is a generic address to any human being, but actually it was a common form of address in the first century used between Jews. So when Paul says you are without excuse, O man, he is addressing Jewish religious people who are relying on the law for their salvation, relying on their religion to be right with God. And as we bring it into today's context, we would apply it to the religious church people. And Paul begins to address the fact that these religious churchgoers, these moral people, are judging those addressed in chapter 1. Now we need to note that the issue is not in their judgment. Then Paul would be in trouble because he just passed judgment on the world in chapter 1. We think often of a text that is used well out of context in Matthew chapter 7. Right? Often the world, people that don't even really know the Bible, they know this verse. Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Say, so see, judgment is wrong. But that's not what Paul is saying. The, the kind of judging Jesus in Matthew 7 and Paul here in Romans 2 referred to was not appraising somebody's character based on their conduct, but hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of other people. In the same context there in Matthew 7, Jesus told his followers to watch out for false prophets. Matthew 7, 15. And how would you know if they're false prophets? Well, verses 16 through 20 of Matthew 7 tell us you'll know them by their fruits. You'll judge them by their character. You see, moral judgment is right. God approves it. Everyone ought to be able to look at another and say that's wrong or, or that's right based on the word of God. Here, Paul's not condemning people because they are judging others or condemning others. He was condemning them because while they are condemning and judging other people, they're doing the same thing. They're judging other people while their own hearts are full of sin. And so what the Jews are condemned for here is not merely judging, but also practicing the very evil they denounce. And the problem is not that they disagree with Paul's assessment in chapter one. It's that they agree with his assessment, yet they still practice the same things. In fact, if sinning while applauding the sin of others, as we saw at the end of chapter 1, they not only sin, but give uh, uh, applaud people that sin as well. If that's wrong, would it not be even more inexcusable still to condemn those people while sinning yourself? You know, it's true that people tend to criticize in others those negative traits of which they themselves are guilty. We're quick to judge other people for the things that we struggle with. John Stott said it this way. Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We're often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient towards ourselves. We work ourselves in, up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people. While the very same behavior seems not so nearly serious when it occurs in our hearts rather than theirs. 
We even gain a vicarious satisfaction from condemning in others the various faults we excuse in ourselves. R.C. Sproul said, even though these words are addressed specifically to the Jews, there's a more universal application of the, tra- of the text. What was true for Israel is true for us. We're very quick to judge the world around us. We're very quick to look at our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, our politicians in the world's culture in general, and very quick to pass judgment and condemnation on them and share how evil and wicked they are. Paul informs us we would be wise to look in the mirror. This text is speaking to every one of us who thinks that we're exempt from God's judgment because we've not sunk to the level of the pagan. You see, we make two really serious errors. We underestimate God's standard of righteousness and we overestimate our own standard of righteousness. This is why Christ condemned the Pharisees in the first century. We think of Matthew 23, where he says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. We need to be careful about blindly passing judgment on others. Looking at the world around us and judging them because we think we're good because we sit in the pew on Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, we live no different. We have the same goals and the same desires. And we're just relying on the fact that we're we're God people. We're religious people. We go to church. Therefore, I'm good. You see, when we do this, we presume on God's grace. The second thing we need to avoid is to presume. Don't presume on God's grace. He says in verse four, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We begin to think sometimes that because we're religious, because we're God people, that God just kind of winks at our sin. You know, my sin is respectable. That one's not respectable. But my mind's okay. God's good with it. And we tend to think that Because we are religious church people, it's all good. And we we actually begin to presume to look down on or despise or think lightly of God's grace. Specifically, we think lightly of his kindness and forbearance and patience. This word kindness is his kindness in general to people. His forbearance and the fact that he suspends wrath, he withholds judgment. And his long suffering towards us. You know, we tend to judge God from an incomplete and distorted human perspective. Failing to acknowledge that if it were not for God's gracious goodness and patience, no human being would be alive today. It's only his grace that allows any person to take another breath. I mentioned last week, sometimes we see the things in the world and we think God's not doing anything. And we presume upon God. But even in our own life, we begin to think that it's okay. God's fine with what I'm doing. 
And we presume on his grace, but he tells us that is a sign of a hard heart. He says, you're, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath. He's speaking specifically to those in the church who have not placed their faith and trust in Christ. Who are relying simply on religion to save them. Relying simply on the fact that I'm doing some God things to save me. And he's saying your hard heart towards the gospel, towards what you are hearing, your stubborn and unrepentance is leading you to great wrath on that day. You know, sometimes we try to whitewash God to make him other than he actually is. Some churches, some Christians begin to presume on God's grace to believe that that's all that God is. We think of God's love and we are thankful for God's love. We are thankful for God's grace. But God is the sum of all his attributes, not one at the expense of another. And so we are reminded as well that God is a God of wrath. You know, often we ask why God allows bad things to happen to seemingly good people. But that's the wrong question. The question should be, how is it that God allows anything good to happen? Why doesn't God strike down people, especially Christians, for their sins as he did Ananias and Sapphira or, or the sons of Korah in their rebellion when he opened up the earth to swallow them? But the reason is because God is patient. We'll find out later in Romans in chapter 9. But the reason is that God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand. So don't presume on God's grace. Don't think that just because it feels all good with you, you're doing the religious things that you're good. You see, you don't have an excuse because God sees your heart. You might be putting on a good show, but God sees through the facade. But it doesn't stop there. We also see we have no excuse because God sees our works. In verse 6, he says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. In verse 6, he tells us he will render, he will give back, he'll pay back everyone according to their work. So we're reminded that God sees everything, not just what happens on Sunday. Hebrews 4 tells us that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. And so Paul tells us that God responds in one of two ways to our works. Either, first, God grants life to the righteous. In verse 7 and verse 10, he says in verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the Greek. So those who by patient endurance 
It's a different word than the patience we saw earlier. That earlier word of patience means long-suffering. This word of patience is more of the idea of, of building endurance, who by constantly practicing right things. In Psalm 33, verse 5, it says that he loves righteousness and justice. God loves to act towards those who work for him. But the whole scripture does not allow us to interpret these verses to say that God grants life to those who work good works. Be easy to look at this text and think, okay, we need to be patient in well-doing. If we seek for glory and honor and immortality, if we do these works, we'll have eternal life. But that's not what Paul is saying. The whole scripture does not allow us to interpret these verses to mean that if a person's life persists of good works, that God will grant eternal life. Why? Because no one can do that. No one can live a perfect life. Instead, as we will see as we walk through the book of Romans, that only those who have placed their trust in God through Jesus Christ are capable of or even will want to seek godliness. In other words, the life that is saved by faith is to give evidence of that salvation by doing God's work, by patient, long-suffering, striving for glory and honor and immortality. But what is he speaking of? Well, we think first off, we seek for glory. But as believers, having placed our faith in Christ and surrendered our life to God, we don't seek our own glory. Rather, we discover, 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for God's glory. In Revelation 4.11, we are instructed that God created all things for His pleasure, for His glory. So Paul is saying that those who through the Spirit seek for God's glory demonstrate they are of God and gain eternal life. For those who seek God's honor, a true believer seeks honor, but not the worldly honor that most long for. Instead, we seek the honor that comes from God, the honor of Him saying to us one day, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not by works that we're saved. Paul's not saying that if you sit in the pew on Sunday, if you pray your, your prayers, maybe you run your, your, be, your, your prayer rosary beads or do whatever it is that you think is going to save you. That's not it. Titus 3.5 tells us, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. It's only by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit through our faith and trust in Christ that we gain eternal life. God grants life to the righteous, but only those whose Christ's righteousness has been placed on their account. On the other hand, God grants wrath to the wicked. For those, verse 8, who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Those who live for themselves, who are self-seeking, selfish ambition. Definition of those who simply are not saved. They're living for themselves, for all that they can get. They are destined for God's wrath. See, this is the greatest crime we could commit, is to make life all about us. 
We think about the very foundation of sin itself. Genesis 1 and 2, we see the created order where God created everything. He spoke it all into existence. And at the end of every day, he looked at it all and he said, it's good. And at the very end of creating everything, after he formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the one time he said it's not good, seeing that man was alone to demonstrate the unity of marriage, he takes the, the rib from Adam and creates Eve, and then he says it is very good. And then comes Genesis 3. And living in this very good Satan, having rebelled against God, comes to God's creation and says, you should be God instead. And mankind, living in the perfection of God, under God's perfect authority, decided, God, I don't want you to be God anymore. I want to be God. I want life to be about me. And it's the foundation of every sin that we commit is we make life all about us. And God says for those who are self-seeking, wrath is coming. For those who don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. The reality is, Sunday after Sunday, as we look at the word, we see the truth of God. John 17, 17, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. But we choose not to obey it. We choose instead to live in our own way, to try and earn salvation in our own way. And it won't work. You see, the lost pagan will surely perish as the lost religious person. Paul's already intimated the eternal tribulation and distress of the lost pagan actually will be less than those of that religious person who've been, who have that advantage of hearing, of hearing the word of God. To sum up, those who seek God and persevere in goodness because of the Holy Spirit indwelling in them through the sacrifice of Christ, they will gain eternal life. While those who are self-seeking and follow evil will experience God's wrath regardless of their religious proclivities. Finally, though, we see that we have no excuse because God judges according to his law. You see, there's no partiality with God. He says, whether Jew or Greek, religious or unreligious, pagan, they'll all be judged by the same standard. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the, what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here we see two standards, two sets of people when God judges. Both will be judged by God's law. You see, we see first that God condemns those who know his law and fail to keep it. 
It says in verse 12, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, there's something we, we need to understand that is going on here. The first century, the Jew thought that merely possessing the law could save him. But the possession of the law was actually the context in which he would be judged. And Paul's emphasizing that the law itself did not grant the Jew immunity from God's judgment. Because in that day, they thought that if they performed certain acts, if they followed the checklist of laws, that God was pleased with them and they would have eternal life. At best, at worst, if they didn't do any of that, I mean, they might miss out on some earthly blessings that God would give them, but he still wouldn't judge them with eternal judgment because they're God's people. They're good. And Paul is telling them that this is simply not the case. You know, today, many believe that performing certain moral or religious works gain God's favor. We've got almost our checklist of religious things we need to do. Okay, I went to church on Sunday or, or even I went to church on Christmas and Easter, so I'm good. You know, I prayed, I prayed for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm good. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm good. I was raised in church, so obviously I'm a God's person. We stay out of trouble. We're politically conservative. Therefore, God's pleased with us. Even if we don't get everything on earth we want, we'll still get heaven. We'll be fine. But that's not the case. You see, the standard of measurement is not the world around us or our own religiousness. The standard of measurement is the perfect Keeping of God's law. That's why the writer of Hebrews, as he lays out the law and what it looks like today, in two different places discusses this reality. In Hebrews 10 and verse 26, he says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What's he saying? He's saying, your religion won't save you. And if you're expecting it to save you, if you are trampling underfoot the sacrifice of Christ that says you can't save you, only his blood can it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of that God. He says in Hebrews 12, verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Here's what we're saying. Just because you are religious, just because you were raised in church, just because you said a ditty one time in Awana, or are fairly moral, or are politically conservative, does not help. In fact, in the text we just read, we learned that it leaves us in a worse place, subject to the consuming fire of God. A fearful thing of falling into his hands. You see, if we don't place our faith and trust in Christ alone, we're in trouble. Because we fail to keep the law. We can't keep it. But we fail to keep the law not out of ignorance, but willfully. On the other side, we see that God condemns those who don't know his law and fail to keep it. This raises the logical question. But what about those who've never heard the gospel and don't know God's law? Aren't they even maybe better off? Because they don't know. They get to plead ignorance. Are they responsible as well? Well, in verse 14, he tells us, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here he's saying their conscience their God-given conscience bears witness against them. They can't plead ignorance because God has implanted in each and every human a natural understanding of what God expects. This is why even the pagan is able to look at murder and say, yeah, I don't think that's okay. They know in their hearts, their conscience Bears them witness. And so as many as sinned without the law will perish without the law. They'll be lost, not because they did not have the law, but because they sinned. Nobody can stand before the judgment seat of God and complain that it's not fair. Our consciences tell us that every last person at some point will be held accountable before his Creator, And we believe this because God is a righteous judge. A judge who refuses to punish evil is not a good judge. He is an unjust judge. And a corrupt judge is not good. But God, in his goodness, is the one who judges all and does what is right and will judge evil. Here's the point of this text today. We looked at chapter 1, and we agreed heartily with the condemnation of our culture. Because we're good. But Paul says we're not. 
Because it's not about being moral. It's not about being conservative. It's not about going to church. You can be baptized so many times, you know, every fish by its first name. It won't save you. Only the blood of Christ saves. Only faith in Christ saves. So we'll see in Romans chapter 10, only those who call on Jesus as Lord are saved. Because it's not by your works. It's not by my works that we're saved. So the question is, what are you relying on for your eternal salvation? We can't rely on our conservative values to save us. We can't rely on our religion to save us. We can't rely on our morality to save us because we can't keep the law. And as James tells us in James 2, whoever keeps the whole law but yet fails in one point, he is guilty of the whole thing. Only faith and trust in Christ saves us. Only surrendering our lives to Christ saves us. So what are you trusting in for your salvation? What is it that you will answer if God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? Only the blood of Christ can save you. Three things I want you to walk away with. Three walking actions today. So what? Number one, examine your heart to be sure you are a Christian. Just because you have not bought into the world's culture, just because you have not followed through with the sexual or homosexual or societal chaos that has taken place, doesn't mean you're good. Examine your heart to be sure you're a Christian. Number two, be careful about passing judgment on others. Pointing to all the things the world's doing wrong. Make sure we clean our own house first. Make sure we're living the way that we ought to live. Which leads us to number three. Do all things for God's glory. It's all about him. Nothing you do can atone for your sin. Nothing you do can make you right with God. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that you have given us to look at your word, to be reminded that we don't deserve salvation, that we cannot earn it, that being moral, going to church, having your law, does not grant us eternal life. We thank you that you did not leave us without hope, but sacrificed your son on our behalf. Lord, I cannot help but believe in a room this size, there are those who have not yet placed their faith and trust in you, who are relying on things other than Christ for their salvation. Lord, I ask that you'd not let them rest until they have made it right, that your spirit would draw them to yourself, that they might become part of the kingdom of God. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.